Hey folks, Duncan Kinney here, host of The Progress Report. Today we're speaking with fellow Harbinger media podcaster, Shama Rangwala. She does The Replay Pod with Desmond Cole, a podcast on the inescapable politics of popular culture. And I do recommend subscribing if you haven't already. And I'm really excited to get to our chat with Shama. She's a returning guest. In fact, she's my very first guest on this podcast and such a smart and welcome voice when it comes to the big picture and political theory and tying everything together and getting away kind of from the individualized liberal bullshit that we are so immersed in. And this week, Shama and I are discussing the UCP government's recent announcements that are supposed to protect free speech on campus. Uh, Really a protection for edgelords who think that residential schools were actually good. But folks, if you regularly listen to this podcast, if you like the work we do here, if you like the investigative reporting we do, if you like our newsletter, please consider becoming a regular monthly donor. We've lost a few people over the past month just because financial times are hard. So if you can afford it, please go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card, become a monthly donor. Jim and I would really, really appreciate it. And now on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, recording today here in Amiskwashiwaskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the mighty Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is a returning guest, Shama Rangwala, actually the very first guest we had on this podcast, uh, now an assistant professor at York University, and Shama is here uh, in order to have a, a very fun zesty interesting discussion about uh i don't know academic free speech is probably the, like the, the the large banner thing that we would have it but but really i don't think i could have brought a better guest because when i go to your york university bio page shama it says your teaching interests include theories of racial capitalist formations feminist theory and critiques of imperialism and colonialism you shama our patient zero for the woke mind virus that is attacking our university students. So thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, patient zero or first against the wall when the fascists take over. That's true. Well, let's not think about that. Let's okay, think about yeah, it. Yeah. But yes. It's, it's, uh, but you've left Edmonton for Ontario. How is your, your new job at York university treating you? You know what? I actually, I love my job and being in Toronto. So um, York is, uh, you know, it's it's great. Like the students are really smart and it's actually majority students of color. So like that's a different kind of vibe than I've had at other places I've taught. So um, yeah, it's been really interesting for me. Great colleagues. Um, it's not cool to like talk about liking your job, but I did, uh, you know, get a good one. So I'm very lucky. I mean, there was, uh, I remember I read a lot of um Oh, what the fuck is this guy's name? Graham Ferguson, a Canadian author, the guy who wrote Why I Hate Canadians. I read that as a teenager, and I remember him saying that like the most ideal Canadian job is like associate professor. It's like you got job security, you can say what you want, you're not like in charge of a lot of people, you make decent money. Like at the end of the day, it's like oh, sounds like a good job to me. You're in a union. <laughs> York has a very very good union, so. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, you know what, we always like can do better, but just, you know, I feel like I came from places that were not very good on, on labor. <laughs> uh, so then York looks really great for me now. 
So uh, the reason we're all here today is, you know, academic free speech. Uh, and that's the like the, the overarching term we're going to use. But it's really because a widely reviled former professor uh, got owned at Lethbridge University. And then the UCP government kind of pissed its pants and is using what happened at the University of Lethbridge to kind of clamp down on enemies in the university system. But before we get into like what happened at Lethbridge, I think it's useful to take a few minutes to talk about Frances Widowson. She is a former associate professor at Mount Royal University, my uh, alma mater where I went to school. And she was, uh, yeah, invited to speak by a philosophy professor at the University of Lethbridge and again, had her show run. But she became somewhat infamous for a book she wrote in 2008, which was actually the same year that she became a tenured university at Mount Royal, which was titled Disrobing the Aboriginal Industry, The Deception Behind Indigenous Cultural Preservation. And in a 2009 McLean's piece titled Tough Critique or Hate Speech, Calgary's Prof's paper on the Aboriginal Industry Starts a War, the following was written about Woodison, um, you know, about her speaking at a Canadian Political Science Association meeting. It says, Widdowson, a policy studies professor at Mount Royal College, argued our Aboriginal reserve system isn't working. It encourages unemployment and alcohol alcoholism since there are so few jobs on reserves. Policies that encourage First Nations to live separate lives merely prop up a broken system. The best way to help Natives achieve health and prosperity is assimilation. Her paper also criticized Aboriginal traditional knowledge, arguing that some claims didn't hold up to scientific analysis and discussed a development gap between Natives and settlers, implying that Europeans were more advanced. So just based on that whole, you know, introduction to Frances Widowson, um, you know, like, I think we can kind of see where she's coming from here. She is, she has started out her career as an edgelord and she continued her career as an edgelord. Do you think that's fair to say, Shama? Yeah, I mean, this, uh, what, is she, what she's saying was actually like quite normative like decades ago, right? Like you've probably seen like people will like dig up an old Canadian history textbook or something from the 1950s and it'll say like, yeah, white people are like more advanced. So like she is actually saying something that's like very normative uh, to the Canadian settler colonial project. Uh, but this is not how, you know, we think about this today. Um, I guess it passed peer review. Like, I'm not even sure what, like, the press is for this. But it's not something that's going to be taught in classes. Um, like, I had never even heard of it. So, like, when you say, is she just an edgelord? I mean, that's kind of the point. But it's also the point that what she's saying is actually kind of, is, like, normative to the settler colonial state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, it, she has set herself up as this brave truth teller where really she's just kind of repeating you know, well-worn white supremacist rostrums from, again, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But but again, repackaged as brave truth-telling, which is really her kind of like academic uh, calling card. And and you said, yeah, like this is this this book is does not seem to have made a mark in the academic world. And it was kind of like widely criticized at the time. Uh, Peter Kolchinsky in 2009 for Canadian Dimension wrote about the book. The agenda of this book is to attack the notion of Aboriginal rights in favor of a notion of universal human rights. The book dismisses Aboriginal culture as primitive and outdated and relies on the evolutionary anthropology of a century ago. Its particular target is traditional knowledge, especially traditional ecological knowledge, which Widowson and her co-author argues does not exist 
except as forms of local knowledge that people from any culture can have. The book is based on intellectual dishonesty, and the authors can barely cite a living anthropologist who will agree with them. So the, anthrop the anthropologists they do cite favorably almost all come from before the 1950s, when the now totally discredited doctrine of social evolution still left trace traces of its pernicious influence. And I will link to this uh, Peter Kolchansky kind of review of, of Francis Woodison's book in the show notes. But like, again, that's a pretty good encapsulation of like and pretty good criticism of Widdowson and where she's coming from. And she kind of became this minor figure in kind of conservative academia, you know, based on this book. And, you know, this was in 2008, 2009, this came out. She had a, you know, a career at uh, Mount Royal College at the time, now university. And she really popped back into the eye back in March, 2019, when Widdowson invited well-known turf uh, Megan Murphy to Mount, Royal to, to Mount Royal University to discuss, should trans people exist? Um, no, sorry, the talk was titled, Does Trans Activism Negatively Impact Women's Rights? Uh, as you might expect, students and faculty at Mount Royal University pushed back against this talk with petitions and protests. And notably, Whittleson believes that this was kind of the beginning of the end for her at Mount Royal. Uh, she was eventually fired in 2021 for reasons that have not been disclosed uh, and are still actually in arbitration. Whittleson claims that she was fired for questioning woke ideas, while media reporting has mentioned things like uh, allegations of intimidation and harassment. And we won't know until, you know, an arbitrator sits down and, and makes a call on this. But 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 even just to take a minute, like, Shama, you're not a tenured professor yet. You said you're a, you're a tenure track professor, right? Mm -hmm. And that's different from Francis Whittleson, who's like who had tenure. Yeah. And, and like as a tenured professor, how hard would it be for Francis Whittleson to get fired? So yeah, before you get tenure, the way that they do it is just to like deny you tenure. But once you have tenure, it's really hard to get fired. You have to have done something like really egregious. And we know actually lots of people who are doing all kinds of things and not getting fired. So, um, you know, it needs to be an ethical breach, um, some kind of like fraud or harassment. And even then, like, you know that there's like, you know, harassers in academia who don't get fired. So it is it is actually pretty difficult to get fired, yeah. And, and that is actually good. There are reasons that we need to have these kinds of tenure protections, like historically, um, because how can you like be critical of the state at a publicly funded university? Like if you want to have that thing that we're calling academic freedom, which I think is like a much more complicated term than, you know, uh, it usually gets represented as. But in order to have that, you have to have some kind of job security, right? But they're also getting rid of that job security, like tenures being gutted. Um, you know, the academy is mostly like precarious labor. So yeah, it is hard to get fired if you have tenure, but the academy is doing all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. And and Frances, uh, you know, around this time that she invited Megan Murphy, she said, other things that got people's attention. She kind of continued her career as a professional edgelord where she said in 2020 that like black, the black lives matter movement had destroyed the university and also that residential schools gave indigenous children education that normally they wouldn't have received. And, uh, you, you know, this is again, par for the course for kind of what Widowson, the kind of person that Widowson is, the kind of statements that she likes to make, the kind of academic, uh, discussions that she likes to have. But you personally had a run-in with Widowson, did you, Shama? 
Yeah, so this was actually the first that I'd ever heard of her. So when the UCP uh, mandated the adoption of the Chicago Principles, I wrote an article um, on my website, Pyrosense, um, about the uh, Chicago principles and kind of complicating that, like what are they actually? Um, so people can can look that up. It, it's titled Free Speech in the University, a closer look at the Chicago principles. Um, and that circulated um, quite a lot. And I wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail and like I was doing TV and stuff. And so somehow she heard of me, I guess, and wrote me this email um, and said, like, would you come to uh, come to Calgary to MRU to uh, give a talk or like be on this panel and like we would pay your expenses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was kind of like a normal invitation in some ways, but then I sort of looked up what like she was about and, and um, yeah. So then I wrote, I wrote back and I put my uh, response kind of public or like I put it on Facebook or I was just kind of like, I want to kind of respond to this publicly. So I said, thanks for the invitation. I must decline. And I said, I've written publicly about how debate can be, you know, useful pedagogical tool and discomfort um, can be an important part of learning. But I said, I have also made it clear, I do not believe it is pedagogically sound to debate um, basic rights, such as the Rational Space Network debating, that's her group, debating whether trans rights hurt feminism or conjuring the specter of a quote-unquote aboriginal industry, which ignores the material realities of colonial capitalism Canada. Um, I stand with Indigenous peoples and people of all genders as a first principle, not as a position to be debated. Our foundations are incommensurate and no amount of debate will resolve that. And I also said I've written extensively about how the free speech issue is a red herring for the delegitimization of the academy as a force for critique and having three people with institutional power. So this was before I had my job, debate a precarious faculty member, um, might be a good spectacle, but I will not participate in it. Okay, so then she screenshotted my email, which whatever, fair, and tweeted it and put like red lines around it and, th and things like that. Um, but I really made myself, I think, as clear as I could as to why um, this kind of debate is not generative. In fact, it, it, it kind of, uh, you know, when you debate things, you make it seem as if it's just like a marketplace of ideas and you can just like win a position as if there are no like material circumstances that exist, right? So- uh, yeah, I mean, you're yeah. far more generous to the concept of debating than I am. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, debate can sharpen a position, right? But this is not about sharpening a position. This is, it's actual just like a circus show, you know, that, that yeah. Most public debates, I would argue, are bad and not useful. <laughs> and I would agree like with that. I would absolutely agree with that. Like, I actually think it's pretty rare um, to see a debate staged that actually is attuned to like, at least let's um, agree that like some like material conditions exist, <laughs> you know, um, is capitalism good or bad? Well, I mean, we actually have like answers to that. You know? mm -hmm. uh, we have like history, like we have, yeah. I mean, I would go even further. I would say that like debate clubs in high schools and universities are also bad. I don't like, I think they encourage, uh, things that I don't think are very useful for society. 
It's funny because, yeah, what I remember like debate, the debate club in high school being framed as like, it's actually really good for you to learn how to debate a position you don't actually believe because it'll make <laughs> you such a good debater. And it's like, this has like broken the brains of generations. <laughs> yeah. So many, so many libs have just been like, actually, yeah, I should be able to do this in well. And it's like, oh my God. And everything gets reduced to, you know, rhetoric and spectacle instead of like what is actually happening <laughs> so yeah. yeah all right, all right. I, I, that's just my own personal animus towards debate as a as a as a form of kind of public education but let's get back to the university of Lethbridge, which was you know the site of uh you know Wittison's owning and is actually a place that doesn't really brook bullshit like this. Um, if you'll remember about a decade ago, it was University of Lethbridge students that baited Tom Flanagan, another like right-wing edgelord shithead, into discussing his views on child pornography, which uh, led to the temporary exile of Tom Flanagan from polite society. Don't worry, though. He did make his way back in after not apologizing and just saying oh, people were mean to me. Um, but Whittleson was invited to speak at the UofL campus by a philosophy professor about her views that like, a mob mentality and woke policies increasingly threaten academic freedom. And I should point out that she was able to give two separate speeches to this philosophy class. Um, but th it was the public facing talk that people were mad about. So petitions were circulated, people organized themselves and made the made administration quickly aware of the fact that this person was not welcome. And the UofL uninvited her to speak. Wittleson, just even though this happened, she was like, I'm still going to come speak anyways. And she showed up at the UofL to like the public space to the atrium there and she where she was met by 700 to 1000 people who told her in varying ways to fuck off and that they didn't want to listen to her. And uh, it fucking ripped. Wittleson was the recipient of the rare but awesome like in real life ratio, not just not just the Twitter ratio and essentially had to leave with her tail between her legs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I will say it's really great that the students organized and that's like one thing that happened. But to say that she left with her tail between her legs, I mean, there is a consequence of this and that, you know, you know, you can ex expand on this, but that's the that the UCP is strengthening their, you know, obsession with this like, quote unquote, like free speech panic. Um, and so actually it kind of benefit benefits them. And I don't mean that in the sense that it would have been better to let her talk. I actually think it's really a great show of like student activism and agency to boot her off campus, but we need to be like really careful about, um, you know, is this like, where, like, where's the bigger fight? Like, it's like the battle and the war, right? Mm -hmm. That's a battle, but it, it actually like what the UCP, because they have state power, they're able to do something like quite um, material, which is, you know, in line with everything else they've been doing to just gut um, Alberta post-secondary. You're absolutely correct. Uh, Woodowson getting owned so publicly by so many people meant that the UCP essentially had to step in on her behalf and, uh, and protect her. And a couple of days later after this, they put out a release saying, quote, Alberta's government will require post-secondary institutions to provide annual free speech reporting to the Minister of Advanced Education, unquote. And, you know, details were pretty scarce and like these actual rules haven't come out yet. But essentially, you've got the Minister of Advanced Education, this little scumbag, Demetrius Nicolaides, talking about how 
uh, he wants to ensure that freedom is made stronger and that the voices of all Albertans deserve to be heard and respected. And this is why the UCP is working to protect free speech and academic freedom on post-secondary campuses and justifying this, um, why he's making post-secondary institutions have to report annually to the government on their efforts to protect free speech on campus. Um, part of the part of the information that was used to kind of like justify this was a, a 2022 McDonald Laurier Institute study, which talked to a bunch of university professors in Canada. And it said, regardless of political leaning, 34% self-censor because they are concerned about negative consequences if their true opinions on certain topics became known. Shama, you're a university professor. Do you self-censor because you are concerned about consequences if your true opinions on certain topics became known? So I think that it's probably fair to say that I don't self-censor <laughs> in general. And maybe that's why I uh, have been invited onto this podcast. Um, yeah, I don't I don't personally self-censor. Like, again, I think I was just exceedingly lucky. Like, I don't believe in meritocracy. Um, just like the right job came up at the right time for me and I somehow got it. Um, and so I do have a job at an institution that, you know, like my department is one of the like best departments in Canada for black studies. Like it's a very, um, you know, very like critical, like there's lots of great, great work going on there. Um, but so I don't self-censor in general, but I do want to bring up that there is a real issue around academic freedom um, with like, and this is the big example I think is around Palestine. And so the organization Palestine Legal did a study um, with like lots of citations and data and wrote a report called the Palestine exception to free speech. So there is actually a lot of evidence that people who work on Palestine or support Palestinian rights have to self-censor and so, um, you know, that's just one example, but there are actually ways that people do need to self-censor. And I really want to emphasize here that the, uh, this issue of self-censorship is a labor issue because as academic labor becomes more precarious, it's been precarious for a long time, but now it's like the number of tenure track positions that come up are so few that like most people, if you graduate with a PhD, you just take some like contract labor um, if you want to keep teaching at a university. So it's easy for an institution to say, okay, we're not renewing your contract rather than saying, oh, you said something critical of the state or you said something critical of the institution or, you know, critical of the allies of the state, you know, so they don't even have to name it as such that they are um, regulating speech in this way. They're like, oh, no, no, we just have a bunch of precarious laborers and sometimes their contracts will be renewed and sometimes they aren't renewed instead of like who's gets renewed and who's doesn't and is it, are there like issues of speech around that. That is not the kind of free speech issue that the UCP, that like the right wing <laughs> fascists care about. Um, so when they talk about wanting to protect free speech, I want to be really clear that they are not protecting any kind of speech by like defunding the universities. You know, like U of A is so defunded, like my colleague found like a mouse or like my uh, former colleague found like a mouse in, in her office. And it's like just the infrastructure is falling apart. They don't have staff. Um, working uh to like process forms and stuff like hr is like not processing this is i'm not blaming the staff for this i'm blaming the ucp for this and so when you have 
like defunded this university to the extent that it's not able to function, what does that mean um, for like protecting free speech? When you're raising tuition so students don't have access to education, what does that mean for free speech? What does it mean um, for academic freedom when most of the people who are teaching like, you know, junior undergrad courses are on contracts? And if a tenured professor retires, that person is not replaced with another tenure line. Like, what is the free speech issue with that? So there are all of these kinds of ways that academic and free speech, uh, academic freedom and free speech is regulated, but it's not named as such. And so like really want to keep, keep the focus on, you know, what are the kind of like material conditions? What are the struggles against fascism? How these are playing out um, in, in the academy? And the author of that uh, McDonald Laurier Institute study was someone that the UCP also used as a validator, uh, a professor at Canadian, a professor of Canadian history at Trent University named uh, Christopher Dummett. And he also got a quote in the UCP press release that uh, was pretty hilarious. I'm just going to read it for you now. Uh, Alberta universities face grave new threats from those who would turn universities away from their founding and most important goal, the search for truth. The Alberta government's initiative to bolster academic freedom and viewpoint viewpoint diversity are a powerful defense, not only of professors and universities, but of the very essence of higher education itself. Um, yeah, that's Christopher Dummett or Dumit. I don't know how to say his name. Um, just a note about Christopher like Dummett. Brave new threats. Like you cannot <laughs> talk about this while you are dismantling the institution. In fact, Okay, let me put this a different way because you can talk about it because they're part of the same thing. Um, they're actually part of the same thing. This is where I, I should take my own advice of not uh, <laughs> pointing out hypocrisies, but instead um, looking at, you know, it's just like such a, it's such a instinct, right? To be like, oh, this is so hypocritical when it's not. These are part of the same thing, right? I know. And, and, and this Christopher Dumit guy doesn't believe that the systematic kidnapping of indigenous children, stripping them of their language and their culture, and killing thousands of them was genocidal. Uh, he wrote in an October 2022 National Post op-ed, and of course it was in the National Post, quote, many will agree on the negative effects of the schools. He's talking about residential schools here. But to label them genocide? That kind of concept creep, creep invites disagreement and could lead to political polarization about an issue on which agreement might otherwise be possible. Um, so that's the guy. That's the guy that the UCP trotted out as like, actually, this uh, this academic free speech reporting is good, actually. That, that's the person. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, there's one... the state surveillance of like what people are doing in universities is, is good, actually. <laughs> right? Yeah. And there's a final little bit in the UCP press release on this uh, on this matter that I think is worth um, <laughs> talking about as well. Quote, this action furthers previous work in 2019 which required all 26 publicly funded post-secondary institutions in Alberta to either endorse the Chicago principles on free expression or develop a policy that is consistent with the principles. All institutions complied and implemented their policies by the minister's deadline of December 15, 2019, with an exception made for Berman universities and the for, for Berman University and the institution's religious value. Religious values, just to note, a Berman University is the publicly funded religious university that is run by the Seventh-day Adventists. So would this mean that at Berman University, you couldn't say, like, God doesn't exist or something? I guess. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. There are, there are other religious universities, too, in, in 
in Alberta. So I don't know why the Seventh Day Adventist one got a fucking got a free pass. But that's that's just that. But but this little note at the end of this release does talk about you know the UCP's previous work on this, which you've written about, which is oh. the Chicago Principles. And so what what the hell are the UCP talking about when it comes to the Chicago Principles? And like, what are the Chicago Principles designed to do? Yeah, so the Chicago Principles from the University of Chicago are, it's like a very vague um, document about how the university is founded on like a diversity of viewpoints and, you know, allowing people to say whatever they want, even if it's like unwise or wrongheaded or offensive, et cetera. Like they, people should be still be able to say whatever they want within the terms of the law. So yeah, I have written about this and I would, um, you know, if, if the listeners want to like know more of my thoughts, I do kind of a more like closer analysis of it um, in the piece in Pyrocens. Uh, so you, they can check that out. But the Chicago principles do this very particular kind of work meant to reinforce the status quo, but in the guise of saying we're going to allow everything. Right. So it's it's very ambiguous and it also has no like sense of power. Right. It's power neutral. But, you know, we know like when something like is power neutral, it actually like reinforces the status quo, right? So the definitions of what constitutes the limits of speech get to be decided by, um, you know, the institution or the legal system. Um, and it doesn't address the consequences of that speech. And I would really like to us to think about like how this plays out. So we don't say that there's censorship if a physics department doesn't allow um, somebody to give a talk that says like the earth is the center of the universe, right? <laughs> we don't say that like they're being censored and they're being, um, you know, my favorite thing is like uh, is like rebel news, like the rebellion of rebel news, right? Uh, when they're like the most status quo. So the point is because residential school denial is part of that status quo, but in the guise of like being rebellious, that actually does get the, this issue of like speech, like, oh, we should let that person say that thing, right? But historically, like physics shit was also threatening to like the dominant institution of the church, right? Like that was a life of like a matter of life and death, like historically. And so, but like now we're like, no, 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 we're like so enlightened. Like we know that like the sun is whatever, the earth goes around the sun. But with this residential school denial, what we're seeing is, this is about the settler colonial state saying, well, you know, we should probably let let some like ambiguity around this like genocide that we did be public because, of course, it benefits the state. So, you know, that's like one thing like we really need to think about like where like power is located, like this like state power and what that means for like the terms of debate, but also the Chicago principles talk about like, uh, and this the discourse is very much about this. It's like, you should be exposed to things that are offensive. And I want us to think about how the term offensive is very like liberal and individual, right? It's like this feeling, right? It's like, oh, like you should be like exposed to this feeling of being um being offended. And I think like, you know, you mentioned Megan Murphy and like turfs, right? So like the, you know, persecution of trans people is like a huge front in like the, like for the fascists right now. So I want us to think about how the 
primary problem with transphobic speech in the university. This is not, uh, you know, it's, it's not that it's offensive. It is offensive, but the primary problem is not that it, that it, that it, people's feelings get hurt, but it is that we actually need to keep like this material analysis of what's going on with the fascists targeting trans people, that the targeting of trans people is connected to austerity. It's connected to white supremacy and all these systems of power. So it's not about hurting people's feelings. And so the Chicago principle by kind of, um, centering the individual and individual speech and individual responses to speech actually like allows the university to do whatever like to decide however they want of what is like allowable or not yeah i mean the chicago principles really do seem like someone taking that stupid voltaire quote like way too seriously like i disapprove of what you say but i will defend to the death your right to say it like that's what, you know what when all of that came out i tweeted like i blame voltaire <laughs> <laughs> so you brought that up <laughs> yeah i mean that quote is is again probably has done as much harm to liberals uh, or just to society as like um debate as i would argue um, yeah. but yeah you make a very good point about like what are the what is the harm being done what is the what is the point of these policies right who who benefits and who is harmed and, you know, the, the, the Chicago principles to me seem designed to stop students and even like workers on um, on campus from organizing protests mm -hmm. and essentially making life potentially uncomfortable for university administrators and politicians. It, like, it seems more bent to, to stopping that than doing anything else. Yeah. And to reproduce this note, like very capitalist, like normative idea of what freedom is, which is individual, which is, uh, you know, you can uh, you're free to like exchange your labor for wages and free to dine and ditch. Right. Um, so all of this shit is connected. And so like who actually has their free speech curtailed on university campuses, like most often? Yeah. So like I mentioned, um, you know, the example of the Palestine exception to free speech. And, you know, when we talk about who, you know, who has anything curtailed in, on university campuses, I think we need to bring this back to the labor issue. So I don't think that students like students are not being censored. Um, students have a different relationship to knowledge production. But People, um, you know, who are precariously employed are not having their contracts renewed if they're teaching a course that is, uh, you know, critical of the state or what. If you are seen as like a troublemaker, you won't have your contracts renewed. And so, um, yeah, I mean, this is where, again, bringing back that they're talking about free speech, but what's really going on is that they're defunding the university um, and that, uh, you know, the labor uh in the university is very precarious yeah like last year for instance uh at the university of alberta nasa i think the non-academic staff association and ashua which i think is the um what's ashua stand for again i can't remember i think it's the profs isn't it's, it yeah it's um it is tenure track and tenured professors and um faculty lecturers who are on like at least a 12-month contract so those two are labor organizations like the, the the collective bargaining agents for those two folks, they were in negotiations with the university and the university was being a fucking shithead. 
and they were stalling out negotiations. Negotiations weren't going anywhere. And so they did what labor organizations frequently do. They hold demonstrations, they hold information pickets, but they weren't allowed to do it on university property by administration. And like their free speech rights were violated. They weren't violated. They, they didn't, the government didn't use the Chicago principles to violate them. The U of A just said, you know, and used a tactic that is actually quite frequent, which was just said that they, you couldn't do it because um, they didn't have security or insurance, um, which happens quite frequently. <laughs> And, and so like these principles, you know, the Chicago principles, these principles around academic free speech are not applied consistently for obvious reasons, right? Like if you want to organize a, a pro-Palestine uh, demonstration at your university, I imagine you're going to have very high security and insurance costs foisted upon you, right? Yeah. So this is, again, where we have to say that instead of looking at the fine-grained hypocrisies of this, we actually need to think about like how it's connected to, you know, larger issues and like larger struggles. Mm -hmm. And so you, you brought this up too, like, is the state just using this, you know, free speech on campus as a way to just defund universities and, and reduce them to, I don't know, what do they, what does, what does the right wing even just want? They just want universities to be job training centers, I guess. Yeah, what does the right wing want? Uh, <laughs> you know, I I think it's like a it's a kind of like death, like an immiseration, <laughs> like a. Uh, but I'm thinking here, you know, what is, you know, this idea of this like free speech issue as like part of the larger issues. Um, I I want people if they if they are interested in reading more to look at uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore like famous abolitionist um, she was the president of the American Studies Association in 2011 and gave a talk at the conference called what is to be done and she talks about all of these like issues in the university and identifies um, three large trends that it that that they're connected to um, and one of them is structural adjustments. So we're talking like economics, like austerity. Um, the second is the increase in securitization. So like policing and um, incarceration and even just surveillance, uh, you know, uh, all of this, you know, you've done lots of podcasts on, on episodes on that kind of stuff. Um, and the third is the rise of the anti-state state, which we can really see with the UCP. It is a, you know, it is a government that wants to gut any kind of public service, right? So if we look at those three things and really think about how this, um, how this like weaponization of this idea of free speech is connected to the intensification of those three things like austerity, securitization, and um, you know, just any kind of sense of collectivity. And, and yeah, it's, that's, that's good. I want to, I want to track that down. And, so when we talk about academic freedom, when this term gets bandied about, let's let's disregard you know the UCP frame on right wing freedom and, and what what does it mean to you and what should it mean to kind of the broader public? Yeah, so um, if I may suggest something that I've written, I wrote a piece for Blackwood Gallery called "Pronouncing Unfreedom," um, which people can find online, and this connects this idea of academic freedom to the COVID freedom, um, you know, to just kind of like racial capitalist conceptions of freedom. And I think we really need to get beyond this idea of thinking about freedom as something that is individual, 
Like, I do not, like, as a sovereign subject, possess this thing called academic freedom that, like, that other person doesn't possess, right? Like, or at least that shouldn't be um, how we conceive of it. So, you know, if we think about academic freedom as something individual, then how does it help us to understand, or then it kind of brings up a problem when you have, like, so, so U of A professor Kathleen Lowry had all of these, like, turf um, posters and stuff on her door, right? And she was like, it's my freedom. It's my freedom to have those turf things on my door, right? And that, and, you know, she was invoking academic, like, to be a turf is, like, to exercise academic freedom. But we have to think about, you know, what's the what's the freedom of learning of like a trans student who is in the undergraduate program of which she was the undergraduate director or something like how is that like impinging on their freedom to have this kind of professor so this is where it's like we get bogged down and these kind of like talks about freedom as if it's like something individual you know does that make sense like there's like the freedom of Kathleen Lowry to be a turf is actually predicated on the unfreedom of like trans students and not just trans students, like anybody who, you know, isn't, a, isn't like a fucking turf, right? Um, that it actually is like a limit on their freedom to like move through the space of like that hallway, right? And again, like I want to bring this back to this idea that it's not just that it's offensive, that it is like very material, like it's a material um, their material consequences to this. Uh, so, you know, just as like capitalist freedom, you know, is, you know, the freedom to make lots of like freedom to be a landlord, like what kind of unfreedoms is that predicated on? The freedom to be a billionaire, like what kind of unfreedoms is that predicated on? So I talk about this more um, in that Blackwood piece, but I would just say here to try to like move the analysis past this like concept of some like individual like sovereign subject who possesses freedom. I one of the things I admire about you is your ability to kind of like take us out, take me specifically out of the like thinking of things in in uh, individual or liberal kind of formats and broadening it out to a collective struggle. So I always I always very much appreciate that, but coming back to the, like the political exigencies of why this bullshit is happening. Like, does this argument really resonate? Like, I, I, it feels like this argument isn't necessarily for university professors oh, or university students. It feels like this argument is really for, uh, you know, a broader audience of kind of like angry, like boomer, um, you know, Gen X types who are mad at elites. Yeah. I mean, let's say like those like generational markers are a state of mind, not necessarily the yeah, yeah. people, but yeah, this is absolutely not for people who work inside the Academy. So like, think about the caricature of the Academy as being like a bunch of Marxists. Like I wish it was a bunch of Marxists. I would have like more like comrades in the workplace then. Right. So it's not like we have like, the best funded um, faculties are the business schools in the university. Like the engineering, yeah, yeah engineering, like funded by oh, like U of A, like gets all of this like funding from oil companies for like they're like chemical engineering. For, like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just like the university is not like a bastion of leftist thought. But if they can make it seem like that, then there's like 
all the more like preparing the ground for just being like, maybe we don't need universities. Like, as you said, the kind of um, turning them into job centers instead of a place that where like actual like critical analysis uh, takes place. So, um, yeah, I don't like the UCP doing this is not uh, is is signaling something to people who don't actually like know what's going on in the universe. The university is like a very almost like a, you know, essentially fundamentally like conservative institution. Oh, very much so. Very conservative. And and I think there's also an element of not not only is it a is it a is it a strike back at elites in a way to kind of like frame an ideological war against elites, which is always very funny for conservatives to do, but you know, is effective obviously. But I also think that this broader academic free speech argument and free speech on campus argument is is also just a, a new and night novel way for older people to just say like fuck them kids mm-hmm. and like and you know like kids these days are doing things I don't like and I don't approve of and so I'm just gonna be mad at universities, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which again we don't want to get into generational markers and, and <laughs> that kind of conflict because we've had that discussion before where it's not necessarily a very useful vector of struggle or even defined definitions but. But I think I think we're nearing the end of our conversation here, but there's just a couple more questions I want to ask. And it's like, okay, what do you think is actually going to fucking happen with this reporting policy that Alberta is now instituting? Yeah, it's it's unclear. I think that perhaps self-censorship could be one of the things that's happening. We do see a trajectory, you know, in the U.S., like Canada is often like not that far behind where there's actual like, you know, parts of the curriculum, parts of the canon of like certain disciplines being um, banned in like hard and soft ways. Uh, So, you know, that is, you know, when they, that's like the future the fascists want, right? So like that is one way that it could go. Um, You know, you mentioned the students organizing to get uh, Francis Widowson off campus. And I said, okay, there's like, you know, limited things we can take from that. But one big thing we can take from that is just the fact of organizing. Um, You know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore in that 2011 address, like repeatedly says like the, you know, this is the diagnosis, but the prescription is organizing, organizing, organizing. So, you know, it's not hopeless. Um, Certainly, like we see globally, a lot of unionization, of precarious academic laborers, which I think is really um, exciting. We see the backlash to that too. You know, it's like fucking dialectical, right? That's like the struggle. Um, But yeah, like we can see lots of different ways that this is going to play out. Um, And we have agency, maybe not as individuals, but as collectives. And the university is a terrain of struggle like any other, you know, in its own particular ways and whatever will come to head in the academy is going to be connected to the things that are coming to head in organizing at I don't know Starbucks and like Walmart and you know farm farm you know agricultural workers and stuff like that right all of this mm-hmm. shit is connected I think in the short term we're just very likely to see like vice presidents or vice provosts of freedom of speech at universities Oh my god like, why do you stupid- so You've just like invoked a kind of like nightmare. <laughs> Making like 200 grand a year to produce reports that no one reads or cares about. Um, I'm sorry for speaking it into existence, but I mean, if, if, if those people got all the way to the end of this podcast, listen to this, I mean, good, good for them. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, you're right. There is some really scary shit happening in the United States when it comes to like Ron DeSantis in Florida, like banning uh, black studies essentially in high school mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, banning books and like the restrictions on trans studies, um, which are again, like really precursors to nasty fascist shit happening, which as we have seen. And so like, I, I think it's important to pay attention to this issue. I don't think it's angels dancing on a head of a pin. I think this issue is um, a vector of struggle. Yeah. And I guess I would say like, if we want to think about historicizing some of this, like the struggle is like fascist, they're liberal enablers and the left, which is very like loosely maybe like undefined and heterogeneous and like fighting amongst ourselves and things like that too. But think about like a police station was burned down in Minneapolis and the world saw um, the, you know, during like the protests, um, after we like the world saw like a black man get publicly lynched and like murdered on on camera and we see the liberal response is putting like is like Kamala Harris as vice president and the fascist response is banning um, black studies right but these are like in continuity with each other like the left has to think about different uh, a different response that could fight both of those things, which is abolition, like collective organizing for abolition. So, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, Shama, thanks so much for coming on. How can people follow along with uh, your public facing work? Yeah. So as long as Twitter exists, that's probably the best place to find me. So I'm at Fritz Le Shah, um, F-R-I-T-Z-L-E-C-H-A-T. Um, and yeah, that, that's probably the best place to, to find me. And, and you're I'm even, you're, you're an occasional podcaster as well, aren't you? Yeah. So Desmond Cole and I have our pop culture podcast replay that we uh, like to do when the fancy strikes us. So, um, you can check that out as well. It's at replay the pod, um, on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Follow it. It's great. When the stuff comes out, it's great to listen to. Um, that's it for the pod, folks. If you have any notes, thoughts, comments, I am very easy to get a hold of. I am on Twitter at, at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at duncank at progressalberta.ca. Thank you to Jim for editing. Thank you to Cosmic Famu Communist for our theme. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.